It had been a tumultuous week at Disciples Incorporated. The rabbi and CEO had been arrested, marched through a kangaroo court, and executed. The staff was pretty sure that they were going to be meeting next to disband the company. But then, word had gone around that the tomb was empty and that the rabbi was alive. Confusion abounded. And so the disciples did what any good organization does when there is confusion. They went on with the weekly staff meeting. They gathered around the conference table in the upper room and said, well, if he's back, he's sure to join us. And before they had even begun the agenda, they looked at the head of the table and there he was. No one had seen him come in. They didn't know how he had got there, but there was the rabbi, ready to lead the meeting. It's been a hard week, he said. I know it's been rough. I know it's been scary, but you all stood by me, and I have to reward loyalty like that. And so he gave them first a blessing of peace, and then he passed out the promotions. You are no longer just disciples, he said, you will be my apostles, regional vice presidents. You don't have to go on the coffee runs anymore, guys. We'll have folks, other folks to take care of that. Now, the stories differ as to who was actually at the meeting that morning. Robert's Rules of Orders hadn't been invented yet, so there were too many note-takers and no process for agreeing on what the final minutes were going to look like, and so we get four different versions of the story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that every one of the apostles was there, minus Judas, for obvious reasons. But John tells us a different story. He singles out another one of the apostles, that Thomas guy. Thomas wasn't there either, according to John. He'd had a dental appointment or something and couldn't make the meeting, so he missed out, poor guy. Jesus passed out the promotions, and where was he? Oh, darn. And so the story goes, Thomas shows up for work the next morning, and he says, hey guys, what did I miss? And the rest of the apostles tell him the story of how Jesus had come to join them for the staff meeting the previous day and how he'd blessed them all with peace and passed out the apostolic promotions. And Thomas looks at them sideways and says, yeah, I think you're lying. There's no way that happened. Thomas is a born skeptic. The apostles say, no, 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 it is absolutely true. This happened. You have to believe us. No, says Thomas, I have a hard time believing you guys. You know, this is like that time I left the last meeting early, and when I came back, I found out I'd been signed up for donkey cleanup for the Jerusalem procession. No, <laughs> you are not pulling my leg again like that. I'm not going to believe that he came to visit you until he comes back again, and I can see him with my own eyes. No, no more than that. I don't want you just... Hiring some celebrity impersonator to try to keep the gag going, guys. No, I'm going to believe this happened when I can see him with my own eyes and I can see the wounds where he is crucified and I can touch them because I know you can't fake that. That's the deal. Make that happen. 
And so the next day, they gathered for yet another staff meeting. And sure enough, again, with no idea how he got there, there was the rabbi at the head of the table. Thomas says, wow, yeah, looks a lot like him, all right. But that's not the whole deal. And Jesus says, here, come here, check it out. And so Thomas feels his way around the nail wounds and the hands and the feet, and he knows that those can't be faked. And he says, all right, okay, you're right. I believe you now. And then John ends the story on a snarky note. Jesus gets a little sarcastic, a little out of character for him. Oh, Thomas, you see now when you believe? Good for you. Guess what? For the next couple thousand years, whole bunches of people are going to see this, and they'll still believe. What does that say about you? The Easter story and the tales that surround it are challenging ones for Unitarian Universalists as a whole. The story might be central to your own personal system of belief, or it may not. It may be a guiding and important story for you, or it may not. But the way John in the gospel tells the story, he says, you have to believe it because I said so, and that's the only way to get the good things that are coming to you. John's coda at the end of that story says, then Jesus did many other miraculous signs in his disciples' presence, signs that aren't recorded in this scroll. But these things are written so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's son, and that believing, you will have life in his name. you got to believe, guys. For most of us, I think that's a version of the story that leaves a lot of people out. Perhaps more people than we are aware of. Because I'm willing to bet this morning that there are more Thomases in the world than there are who are ready to admit it. Not just those of us who follow our patron saints in Unitarian Universalism, but also in the Christian tradition. I bet there are more Thomases than not. I bet there are more Thomases in this room than not. So what does that story mean? Is that the end of it? You have faith or you don't? You believe wholeheartedly without the evidence or you doubt? You get the good stuff or you don't? Or is there more to the story? Are there, perchance, other stories? In the years after Jesus departed the earth, he left behind a myriad of followers who were confused about everything. That confusion lasted long after that first staff meeting with dozens of followers looking up to the skies after the rabbi departed and saying, well, what was that all about? What did that all mean? What, what did his life here mean? What did his life here with us mean? 
And humans being human, they decided that they were going to make it mean something. And humans being human, everybody had a different answer for what it all had meant. And so we arrive at the Gospels. Not just the four that we know of in the canon of the Christian scriptures, but a gospel for every apostle and disciple than there, that there ever was, probably. All claiming to have the answer to what Jesus' life had meant. All making a claim to being the one guy who knew what it meant and who could give you the answers. So we don't just have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the early tradition. We have the Gospel of Peter and the Gospel of Judas. We have the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. So many others, all claiming to have the answer. And among all those Gospels that we've rediscovered in the last 80 years, we have the Gospel of Thomas. Good old doubting Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas is relatively short. It is mostly a collection of the sayings of Jesus as that particular author or group of authors remembered them. Some of the sayings are very familiar, and you have seen them in the canonical scriptures before. And some of the sayings are really weird and incomprehensible. One story in particular points to where this idea of a doubting Thomas comes from. All of the canonical gospels share a story of how Peter figures out that Jesus is the Messiah and how, therefore, he gets to be the leader of the church. The general story is that Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? Well, they say that you're Elijah. They say you're Moses. They say you're one of the prophets. Great, says Jesus. Now, who do you say that I am? And Peter, the teacher's pet, pipes up right away. You're the Messiah. That's right, Peter. Good on you. You get to be in charge now. Thomas tells a different story. Jesus said to his disciples, compare me to someone and tell me who I am like. Simon Peter said to him, you are like a righteous angel. Matthew said to him, you are like a wise philosopher. Thomas said to him, master, my mouth is wholly incapable of saying who you are like. I don't know, man. And Jesus says, good answer, Thomas. And then takes him aside and shares three secrets with him that Thomas does not write down in the gospel and that we will never know, thus proving that Thomas has been given all the answers. The Thomas Christians were one of the earliest sects of Christianity. There were Christianities at that time. There was no monolithic church yet, and the Thomas group was one of them, following their saint and his gospel. And at the heart of that gospel was this idea that we can't say for sure who Jesus was. We can't say for sure what God is. And furthermore, 
As the Thomas Gospel goes on to explain, some of the answer might be contained within our own flawed selves. And this was a troubling idea to other Christians at the time. The John Gospel Christians came along a little later. And some scholars today are convinced that John's Gospel was written specifically as a propaganda pamphlet to tweak the Thomas Christians. John is the only Gospel that has the story of doubting Thomas, after all. And it is specifically because John's theology says, we know who God is, and we know who Jesus is, they are the same person, and you have to believe that because I said so. And it's not in you, it's only in him. Thomas and history tell us that John wins out in the end. He makes it into the final canon, and we forget Thomas even existed until 1945 when we uncover the scrolls again. And because John's concept won out for those couple thousand years, we have programmed into our cells, into our cultural DNA, this idea that faith and doubt are a dichotomy, diametrically opposed, the opposite of one another. You have faith. You accept something on faith regardless of the evidence, or you are a skeptic. That's it. And if you have faith, you're all set. And if you, don't, and if you have doubt, boy, are you in trouble. But Thomas tells us a different story. Thomas, in his own gospel, doubts. Who am I? I don't know. But after he answers, I don't know, he doesn't give up. He continues to search for what it all meant, this time with Jesus on earth. He doubts, and yet somehow still practices his faith. Thomas presents us with the notion that perhaps faith and doubt are part of the same process. That faith exists not only in spite of doubt, but perhaps because of it, because of where our doubt leads us. Think for a moment about a group of musicians getting together. The, the choir comes up to the front and Yelena sits down at the piano ready to play and Nyla gets up to conduct and they have practiced for weeks and they're all trained in one way or another to sing or play or to lead and yet despite the training and the practice there is no guarantee that good music will actually happen until we begin to play it and sing it. But in that moment, before, Anything could go wrong. The tempo could be off. The voices may not blend. Weather may have untuned the piano. We don't know until we strike the keys. So maybe we shouldn't just in case we get it wrong and it's awful. But then again, if we don't try, we're definitely not going to get anything good out of it. 
And so we play music as an act of faith. In fact, I think it's safe to say without faith, there would be no music. We'd just be hovering petrified over our keyboards and our sheet music. It'd be an interesting kind of concert. Faith is a risk in spite of doubt. Blaise Pascal, the great mathematician and philosopher of the 17th century, who was also an inveterate visitor to the gambling tables, called faith a gamble, a roll of the dice. We don't know what the outcome will be, he says, but we have a vested interest in the possibility that we may benefit from the outcome, that something good may come to us, and so we roll the dice. Even those who don't think they have faith, he says, are rolling the dice. They're just rolling a little harder than the rest of us, maybe. Sometimes our lives are full of these moments. In our daily lives, we can be certain about a lot of things. I remember to turn my alarm on and the battery is fresh, then the alarm will wake me up. If the toaster is functioning and I put a slice of bread in it and I hit the plunger down, I will get toast. There's not a lot of risk involved there. But our lives are still full of big gambles, huge rolls of the dice. I pledge to my partner that we will stay together for better or for worse till death do us part, knowing that statistics don't give us good odds, and yet I do it anyway because I want, to be, I want it to be true. And therefore, I work for it to be true. I bring children into the world because I believe I can raise them in such a manner as to make the world a better place and make their lives maybe just one step better than mine has been. I have no idea if that is going to work out. And in some regards, I have no control over how that's going to work out because it turns out my kids have turned into their own individual people. They'll tell you that in the manual. But I roll the dice because I want it to be true. So I work for it to be true. I believe in spite of my doubts, in spite of the lack of evidence. And I take what Kierkegaard calls the leap of faith or the leap into faith. It's another one of those wonderfully misunderstood phrases, the leap into faith. It doesn't mean that I step off the edge of the canyon because I believe wholeheartedly that there are river fairies who will save me from hitting the bottom and I will be saved. No, completely ridiculous as nice as that might be. But I believe wholeheartedly in something that I know will give life meaning in spite of all of the evidence around me and I commit myself to that thing because I need it to be true. Because I can reason myself part way there, narrow that gap a little maybe make that leap a little safer, a little more certain. I get nudged from time to time still here in the congregation when I refer to us as a community of faith. 
I know it's a bothersome word sometimes. It triggers some people. Faith. Faith? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'm a Thomas, John. I'm a skeptic. I doubt all the time. Faith in what? What are you talking about, John? We gather here every Sunday and we read the words of our affirmation that love is our doctrine, that service is our prayer, that we are questing for truth. We read the mission and vision as it shows up on our website and our newsletter about how our minds and hearts and doors are open, how we are going to be a beacon to the world. And we look at our principles that say how we affirm that everyone has worth and dignity, how we are all connected, how we believe in justice and equity. And then if we were to go home and fire up the internet and scroll through all the various news sites that we might and start to see how we collectively as human beings are, are living our lives and the choices we're making collectively, and we start to gather up evidence for just how true any of those statements we read week after week might be, the evidence might seem pretty slim nowadays. Circumstantial at best, maybe, sometimes. And still, we come back the next Sunday and we read the words again, and we affirm those principles, not because they are true right now, but because we want them to be. We need them to be. Because in some respects, it is something we feel we have to believe in, have to, just to make life today have meaning, just to make the world a better place than how we might find it right now. So we take a risk that what we believe might actually become truth. We take a leap into faith. 2,000 years ago, the authors of all those various gospels looked to the heavens and wondered what it all meant, and they, they wrote their gospels because that's what they needed life to mean right at that point, at that moment. And for some here today, some of those stories still have meaning for you, and for others of you, perhaps they don't. And for me today, it doesn't matter to me so much whether or not those stories mean anything to you. My challenge today on this Easter Sunday is this. The question they asked. The question that brought all of those gospels into being is the same question that drives the gospel of our own lives today. What does it all mean? What does my life here mean right now? What does my life with all of you mean? I have to make a choice and a commitment about what that meaning might be and do what I can to make that meaning become truth.
Our challenge here is to get ourselves away from that Johnish dichotomy of faith versus doubt, of having one or the other. Instead, we must come to an acceptance that within each of us is a combination of the two, faith and doubt. And it's the and in that phrase that is the most important word. We have to learn to contain within ourselves that spectrum. And then, then we can answer two questions. What must I believe in order to give life meaning? And what must I risk to make that meaning true? Jesus said to his apostles, blessed are they who do not see and believe. But blessed are we too who doubt, because our doubts will lead us along the path. And blessed are we who can come together and balance our faith and our doubt in one person. Happy Easter. Maybe so.